Turning points change the course of our lives. Whether it's a big decision, overcoming an obstacle or tragedy, or taking a leap of faith, these stories of inspiration and resilience are what Turning Point is all about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Turning Point. I'm your host, Priya Sam, and this week, my guest is Daniel McQueen. Daniel's traumatic turning point came when he lived in England. This was back in 2014. He actually moved there for a great job opportunity after completing his master's in Sweden. Everything was going well until he started to feel sick. What started as headaches ended up being a severe brain injury. Daniel now shares the ups and downs of his recovery with the hope of helping others. Daniel joins us today from Vancouver, where he now lives. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. I pray love it to see you. You too. Now, before we get to your turning point, can you tell me what life was like for you in 2014 before you ended up in hospital? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so I had moved to London, England after... Uh, I've been living in Sweden before that, doing a master's. So I moved to Europe initially to do a master's in Sweden and uh, studied sustainability and enjoyed the finer things in life in Sweden and figured, you know, let's make a go of this in Europe for a bit longer. And I said, let's move to London. So moved to London and started working for the tech company I work for now and was working, working pretty hard, working pretty late. Um... Big nights out all the time, kind of enjoying the city. London's a very vibrant city, I'm sure you know. Um, so I, I just was enjoying life and and traveling as much as I could. Uh, the weekend before this all happened, I was actually in Lithuania. So I was traveling around Europe and jet setting. And then I started having these headaches that were pretty debilitating. They would be really uh, noticeable. And, and my eyesight would go blurry or sometimes go black. And, um, you know, I knew something was wrong and I was taking painkillers like candy for them as my head was pounding and I went to Annie twice. Uh, they thought it was vertigo and they sent me home and then I, uh, but they told me if, you know, if the headaches continued, I should get my eyes checked at an optometrist. So, uh, so I did. I can't imagine what that must have been like, because obviously, I think we all know our own bodies, right? And so you're in yeah. this position where you know something's wrong, and you're doing everything you can, taking painkillers, going to the doctor. Um, and it sounds like they were kind of telling you that, you know, it's nothing to worry about. Yeah, well, they, they were kind of telling me, like, look, we think it's vertigo. And I was like, well, this, they gave me medication. I was taking the medication. And I wasn't doing anything. And so I went to Annie twice. And both times, you know, they, they kind of thought it was this and it wasn't that. And and I was taking painkillers like candy for this and it wasn't doing anything. And I was like, this is not working. This isn't fixing it. So luckily in the last visit to the hospital, they had told me, you know, if the headaches continued, you should get your eyes checked at an optometrist. So I got my eyes checked at an optometrist. I was in the middle of an exam, and Mr. Patel stopped it. He gave me a sealed envelope, so I knew this is, is probably not a casual operation. And he told me to go straight to Moorfields Eye Hospital, which I did. I first stopped at home to grab a few supplies, like a Jack Reacher book by Lee Child, and a phone charger and whatnot, because I figured it would be a bit of a long wait and wanted something to read. Um... They ran the same test and escalated me to Charing Cross Hospital. And 
meanwhile, they hadn't told me much of what was happening. I mean, at this point, it's been months of you feel not feeling well, knowing something's wrong. So finally, at this point, it seems they're taking it seriously. Um, there must have been a layer of this being even more challenging or um, I'm not sure if scary is the right word, but you're in another country and I assume you didn't have your family or anything with you at this point. Yeah. So there's definitely an element of this. And I mean, I was talking to my brother about this over Christmas and he mentioned that I had called him and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going into the doctor's office. And it turns out, so, so, so what had happened was I had gone for these eye tests and, and they were escalating me to Charing Cross and it turned out I needed brain surgery. Um, cause there was a build of a pressure in my head caused from a cyst in my pineal gland, which is, um, they call it the third eye. So it's all very, you know, woohoo, but, uh, Turned out I needed brain surgery, and I called my brother and be like, hey, Cam, just so you know, looks like I'm going to have to go in for brain surgery. Don't tell mom and dad just yet. I don't think it's that serious. Um, and he's like, yeah, you were super chill about it. And like, is this even a real thing? I'm like, yeah, I was. And then I told him over the trip, like, look, dude, I was, I was scared. Like, I was terrified. But I didn't want that to show. Um, these are the last, potentially the last memories I'm going to have with my friends and family. And I don't want them to remember me as some punk that goes out whining and whimpering. So let's just be cool. Let's be calm. Let's be under control. I actually sent a text message to my mom before I went to emergency brain surgery. And it reads pretty cool and understanding, but it definitely masks a lot of, like I was, I was terrified. It reads, uh, see you soon, mom. I think I'll have a new haircut next time I see him. Love Dan. And I'm thinking in my head, this could be the very last thing I write. And this text could be read at my funeral. Let's make it, let's, let's make it read okay and not go out like a punk, but like someone with a bit of dignity in class, maybe a bit, a bit of wit for goodness sake. Wow. I mean, so there are so many emotions here. You're so this all happened quickly once you ended up in the hospital, right? You, this At this day, once they started doing these tests, then you found out fairly quickly that you needed this emergency brain surgery. Yeah, it was within a matter of like 12 hours. So now you've had to all of a sudden kind of wrap your head around the fact that this is very serious. You, I mean, and I think brain surgery is always serious, no matter what the procedure is. And yes, you're also now, I mean, if you were in the same place as your family, I'm sure they would have come there, but you're in another country. You're thinking about how worried they're going to be. And then yeah. also having these thoughts about, is this the last message I'm going to send? Like, uh, I can't imagine yeah, what that must have been like. Don't get me wrong, like, I was terrified. I was I was definitely thinking like brain surgery is not a casual thing. Um, you know, I messaged my manager and a few friends and said, Hey, I don't think I'll be on Monday. Like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> this is like brain surgery is a pretty serious operation here, right? Sorry, I'm not sure if I should swear on this, but that's my fault. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, swearing is totally warranted, uh, especially in this situation. That is a lot to be happening all at once and to have to, to think about, I'm having brain surgery. I need to tell my family something. I need to tell my 
coworkers, my manager or something. So did your surgery then happen um, right away? So the surgery happened on June 21st, 2014. Uh, I was on the operating table and then uh, my mom was flying to London. And she left the ground and everything was going well. While she was in the air, uh, things kind of went sideways. So on the operating table, I had a brain hemorrhage. So the cyst they were trying to remove had burst. And I was clinging to life. So messages were flying back and forth. Uh, it was pretty unknown what was going to happen with me and my situation. My mom lands and finds I'm in critical condition. So she rushes over to the hospital. I was in a coma for four weeks, but was in and out of consciousness for months after that. You know, things were really dicey. Like it was, it was very much a touch and go situation. Um, she arrives, I'm in a coma. Um, it was chaos. It was pandemonium. They weren't sure I was going to make it through it. That must have been so traumatic for everyone involved. You, you mentioned you were in and out of consciousness at some points. Do you remember any of those moments? Yeah. So like I was in a coma for four weeks, so I didn't know any of that stage, but I was out of, I was in and out of consciousness for months after that. And I'd have these fleeting memories of, of being on a bed and just being jostled around and I had a, a feeding tube that was put down my throat. This is a bit graphic, but, um, and I'd, <laughs> I'd yank it out and I would do this multiple times that they put mittens on my hands. And I would just remember kind of getting my hands free and then yanking it out. But every time I would yank it out, they'd have to put it down, x-ray me to make sure it was in my stomach and not my lungs before they could start feeding me again. So I lost 20, 30 pounds of weight. So I was looking not so healthy. Um, but I remember when I, when I came to for the, for the final time, like out of consciousness or into consciousness, rather, I woke up and there was uh, my mom, my brother and my dad standing around me and they're all like, Oh, hi, 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 Dan, how are you doing? And I, and I look around and I see all these tubes in me and I'm thinking, Oh, this isn't good. And I'm trying to talk, but I can't speak because I had a tracheotomy my voice box hadn't come back yet. So I, I'm trying to frantically get their attention, get my brother's attention. So I point to Cameron, my brother, and I go, give me a pen and paper. And I write down in the pen and paper, get me out of here. <laughs> he was telling me at Christmas, he goes, yeah, man, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with that. Like, Initially, I was like, I'm going to break him out of the hospital and he's got tubes and stuff attached to him. I was thinking, you know, I've, I've got, um, this, this looks expensive. I don't think I've got coverage for this. So let's get out of here while we still can. Little did I know I would be in the hospital for months after that, but that was my first reaction when I woke awake. That must have been a big moment for your family to see you wake up and for you to be able to write that message because I'm sure they didn't know, you know, what, if you did wake up, what you would be able to do or, and, and not do. Yeah. I think the big, the big issue with the brain injury is you're not really sure what the after effects are going to be. Like, I know that, you know, was I going to live A or B? And then if I lived, what state would I be in? I mean, quality of life is kind of big and I'm very fortunate that I've got 
you know, I've definitely got some quirks to me now, but I'm more or less whole. Um, but being able to write, I think was a big sign for them to know that I was, you know, with, there was a few moments that I remember in, um, in out of consciousness too. I think my mom, they were talking to me all the time and reassuring me. And I think I had made a gesture. Um, I was propped up and I offered to like, come, come give me a hug. And I made a big hug motion and she came over and she was bursting into tears because that kind of showed some cognitive ability. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was really dicey. And, um, just to go back a little bit, Priya, like when I was in a coma, um, the brain injury damaged parts of the brain that regulate your heart rate and, and body temperatures and all this stuff. So I had to have putting ice blankets above and below me to keep my core temperature down. So I would be violently shivering because I couldn't let my core temperature go above 40 degrees. This lasted on and off for about a few days until my heart rate and, and body temperature normalized. So I can only imagine how difficult and traumatic that would have been for my folks to see. And, and I really, like, I'm so fortunate that I saw it through my eyes and not through theirs because that would be, I would imagine, pretty pretty heartbreaking to watch. But that's, you know, I was cold for months after I got out of the hospital because I was just getting over that that initial cold of being underneath ice blankets for hours and end. Wow. I mean, yeah, all of this must have been so traumatic for your family. They, the, I imagine like this roller coaster of emotions for them and feeling also extreme joy when you did finally wake up, when you were able to write this message. Um, so eventually you are released from the hospital, but at this point you cannot walk and you cannot talk. So you go to rehab. Um, tell me about that experience sure well i was able to i was able to talk um i worked with a voice coach at the charing cross hospital it took me a few weeks to talk but i could talk again um she got me talking by just saying she'd take me out for a walk and we go by a park and she'd be whispering in my ear oh these guys don't think you can talk dan they don't think you're good enough to talk and i'd be like oh. and i finally burst out and yell something obscene across the parking lot uh, but I couldn't walk, so I was in a wheelchair. And I was brought to the Wolfson in a wheelchair. Um, I remember telling my dad, he goes, where do you want to go? We looked at a couple rehab capabilities, and I, I figured here, like I was thinking about this, what's the best way to recover? And I figured speed was key. So I wanted whatever I could get into, whatever I could do quickly, ASAP. So I told my dad, I want the Wolfson Rehab Center in Roehampton. Or in, in, uh, shooting in, um, Broadway. And I told him, Hey, dad, make this happen. Make it happen. But I was brought there in a wheelchair. And every day I would wake up and they'd shower you off and I'd be wheeled to the showers in a wheelchair. And, you know, they had to show you how to dry yourself in the shower because you forgot how to do this. So they'd show you to take the towel above your back and shoulders and pat yourself dry. So it's extremely humbling because you just, you know, all the stuff you take for granted, you just know how to dry yourself from the shower. But I hadn't been taking my own showers for months at this stage. And, you know, it was a new thing for me. But yeah, in a wheelchair and it was just slowly learning how to get in a, into bed and into the wheelchair. And like, that was a huge ordeal. That took an hour to do that. 
And I got it down after a while to, to a more fast and, and quick approach, but it was really challenging. And I really took a long time to kind of get around that. Yeah. The way you're describing, you know, having to relearn all of these things that, you know, most of us take for granted and, you know, do without having to think about, it must have been, as you say, humbling. And I imagine it was frustrating at some points as well. Oh, like extremely frustrating. I was, um, you know, your head's going through this, like you're in the hospital and you're like, Hey, what's happened to me? And you kind of make pieces of this and you, I kind of made this choice early on in the process that I was never going to complain about this. I was never going to speak ill of this situation. The worst I ever said was I wish it didn't happen to me. And even that I thought was a bit of a stretch because that's, that's kind of getting into the self pity mode. Um, but I really kind of fostered on the mindset that I wanted to have with this and, you know, life isn't what happens to you. It's what you think about it. And every day I would just kind of get in there and just have this mindset of like, I'm going to be better than yesterday. I'm going to be a little bit better and I'm going to improve a little bit more and progress because this is my situation. This is the cards I've been dealt. Whining about it is not going to do anything good for you. Yeah, well, as you're talking about the, having this mindset, um, I, you know, I've I've, he I've heard stories of recovery from people who say how much their positive mindset really contributed to having that more successful recovery. And obviously, that it's it's not everything. There are certain things that you are completely out of your control, um, but that is something obviously that was in your control. Is approaching every day with positivity. So how how did you kind of build that mindset, or was that something that you had before um, this ever happened to you? I think I've always been kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. But when this injury happened and I woke up in the hospital, I was kind of realizing like, this is, um, you know, this is a pretty big hit and this is going to be the turning point of your life. Um, but it's going to be how you react to it. That's going to determine what happens next. This can either squelch you or this can be like a post-traumatic growth. Uh, my friend told me is what she heard about this and reminded me of, of that when you heard about my story and what you think about it is half the battle. So I just had this in my mind, like this is the way you got to look at this. This is how you're going to get through this. Excuse me. And like, that was the game is what I thought about it. It doesn't matter what you get hit with. It's what you think about it. I think, um, that's just kind of how I, I forced myself to abide by this and, you know, feeling sorry for yourself was never an option because I knew that that was just going to lead to this thing I call the pity spiral where you just woes me, woes me. And until this point, you are in a wheelchair. You mentioned, you know, having to help uh, someone to help you shower, learn how to kind of dry yourself off again. Eventually you do learn to walk again. So tell me about taking those first steps. Yeah, for sure. So in order to walk again, I had to wear a splint in the evening because my leg had frozen at an angle in the ICU. So I had to wear the splint for one hour every night and it was just dreadful. 
Like it was just like I was biting my arm trying to distract myself from the pain to stretch out the muscles because they had atrophied, I guess, in the in the coma or in the ICU. I do that one hour every night and I started out with a Zimmer frame, which is a four post thing where you kind of lurch forward on it. And I would do laps of the Wolfson kind of back and forth and wasn't very elegant or very fast at this stage. Um, and then I move up to something I called the Ferrari, which is, uh, a walker for older people with wheels, but you can go fast on this. So I really thought this was cool. And I called the Ferrari because gamifying the whole system, I was having fun. Well, I was enjoying myself or finding the lighthearted parts of nature in this, right? And then I got to a stage where I could do what's called a naked walk. And then a naked walk was just no support raids. I was walking naked. And... That was like walking without supporter aids and I was just kind of grooving, kind of vibing. And like that was a big moment, right? Because I was walking without anything. The wheelchair was still there in case I need to sit down. Being able to walk again, like that is, that was huge for me. Like, I mean, I was a big sporty guy when I was growing up, right? I played sports every ounce, every day of my life, every hour of my life if I could. So having that taken away was super frustrating. Uh, Being able to walk in was just... You know, that was a big thing for me. There's a, a talk, part of saying my talk that, um, about like perspective and it's, you know, looking in the mirror, you know, I'll see my eye drag a little bit because I've got double vision still from this injury and the eyes aren't exactly level just yet. And I'll look in the mirror and I'll see my eyes drag a little bit and I'll remind myself, yeah, but you know what, dude, you can walk now. So you pick your battles here, chief. Yeah. What an incredible feeling that must have been. And how do you remember how long after um, you were admitted to the hospital that you were able to walk again? Would have been June, July, August, September, Maybe like four or five months, I think. Wow. Yeah. So this is like quite a journey to get here. So now you're able to walk again and let's fast forward a little bit to, um, the next year. So now June, 2015, this is almost uh, a year after you were admitted to the hospital and you had your emergency surgery and um, you were able to return to work part-time. Uh, things yeah. seem to be getting, getting better. It sounds like at this point. Um, so what happened, uh, in June of 2015? So I was late for work one day or I used to see my mom in the morning because I, I was just sort of a brain injury. I needed help to do stuff. You know, I meet her before the, at the tube and we take the, I take the tube to work and she'd go off on her walk and didn't show up one morning. And she came to the house wondering what the heck's going on. And she found me unconscious on the floor and called uh, 999 or 111. I'm not sure what it is in the UK. And the ambulance came to the house burst up the stairs and took me to the hospital and I had emergency brain surgery. What had happened was the shunt had blocked. After the initial brain surgery, I had a shunt put in to help drain the fluid from my brain. And that had blocked, leading to hydrocephalus or water on the brain. I've been having difficulty waking up. This was because the shunt was blocked. So I was rushed into emergency brain surgery and I woke up the next day in the ICU with stuff, tubes going in me again and beeping noises. And I'm just thinking, what the hell just happened? 
and it was explained to me, well, Dan, you had a your shunt blocked, and we had to have emergency brain surgery for you. Apparently, this is pretty rare; it happens in less than ten percent of cases. So I thought, lucky me. And I looked around me, and I was just like, you know, this is square one, man. Like all your progress was washed away. And you hear the beeping of the the hospital machines and it's chaos in the bloody ICU. Like it's so much going on there and people are running to attention and you're just thinking, well, all that work I just worked for for the past year was just washed away overnight. And I thought about this and I'm like, well, you know what, Dan, it's really going to be how you look, choose to look at this. And I was, it was gut wrenching. Like I was absolutely destroyed. Like it took me a day or two to kind of, accept this fate and I realize you know what well you you know what to do here Dan you've done this before you've battled back you've rehabbed yourself you've got back walking and back to work again you know what to do so you know exactly how to do this better than you did last time okay so the next day let's work at start you know I start I could walk again quickly it wasn't it wasn't like I was in a wheelchair again I could still walk which is great so it's not nearly as bad as it was before and I started working on cognitive stuff and you started rebuilding this stuff piece by piece. But there was definitely a moment where I was thinking, you know, woe's me, woe's me. And then I really snapped out of it quickly. I'm like, well, you can't think like that, Dan. Like it's, let's just pick this self up and, and keep going here. It's, it's not, again, what happens to you, it's what you think about it. And I choose to think about it from the perspective of, I've done this before. I know the map. I know the territory. I can get through this faster than last time. How would I build back better from the stuff I learned last time? Well, I made some screw-ups last time. Let's avoid those. So it was it was super frustrating, super trying. And I spent, I got out of the hospital in a few weeks. And then I spent months rehabbing at home, doing vocational stuff. So like getting back to work mode, which was helpful. But yeah, I was pretty low at this stage. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, what kind of impact did all of this, especially, you know, having to go through some of this a second time, what impact did that have on you mentally? Well, yeah, like this, this floored me. Like, to be honest, the first one floored me. And I'm, you know, I'm living away from home. Mind you, my mom came out from, from, from Vancouver, but I'm still in a foreign country and I'm still trying to learn how to do this. Luckily it was English. So I knew what was happening more or less. Um, but yeah, this is a huge knock on, on your confidence and just your perspective on things. And, and then you figure out, you know, what, one step at a time, let's build back up and, and get back to rolling with this stuff. And, and you're progressing nicely and you're back to work and you're like, Hey, this is moving nice. And the second setback happens. And I remember being in that hospital and being like, you know what, man, it's, it's what you think about this that matters, not what it is. Cause the, the brain surgery didn't kill you. It didn't kill you. So you're telling me there's a chance. And I just chose to look at it as like, well, you know how to build back better. And it wasn't easy. I'm not trying to make it sound like it was easy, but it was simple. I knew which direction I was going. And once I made that decision in my mind that I'm going this way, 
I'm going through that wall. I'm going through that wall because that's the biggest thing here. It's like, you can't feel sorry for yourself. You got to put one foot in front of the other. But yeah, Priya, it was super difficult and it was something that I'm like, I, I've recovered quite a bit now, but I'm not out of the woods just yet. Like I'm still every day I wake up and I'm like, I meditate, I exercise, I sweat, I cold shower. Like I've got a routine to get myself in a headspace that can take on the day. Cause if I don't do that, I'll have these, these missteps or these verbal blunders or, or social situations that will come up that I'm, you know, I haven't like, I have to do active stuff to keep myself on the track. So that makes sense. It's not like this isn't happened by accident. This is all intentional stuff I'm doing now. So mentally it was extremely challenging as a long way to answer your question, but I've come with strategies to kind of address this and to kind of make myself successful. I kind of change the game to make myself successful. That's a long way to answer your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you explained all of that. And, um, you know what, what sticks with me from that answer is when you said it wasn't easy, but it was simple. I mean, once you made that decision that you were going to do everything you could, you were going to try and, and focus on kind of that, that end goal, um, how, how you were able to do it. But I appreciate that, you know, it, it wasn't easy. And I'm sure even though you made that decision, there were those really hard days like you explained there. And you've mentioned your family a couple of times here. How yes. important um, was that support through um, through the recovery process? Oh, vital. Like, I don't know how I would have done this on my own. Like, my attention span and ability to kind of cognitively understand and, and recognize everything. To handle this medical stuff on my own would have been a, would have been a dumpster fire. Like, it would have been balls dropped everywhere. My mom and dad came out from Vancouver. They lived in London for about a year. They kind of helped me go through rehab and all the noise that comes with that. And they were crucial. Like, and my brother came out quite often to help me and visit me. Family was huge. I leaned on them for a huge amount of support. For anyone going through something similar or like going through a traumatic injury, lean on people. You gotta ask for help. You gotta be okay accepting help because you know what? You're not able to do all this on your own. If I had said, you know what, I wouldn't be here if they hadn't done that straight up. Like it, it was too much to handle. I've had so much help to get me to where I'm at now, which is why I'm so driven to kind of offer this perspective because if I didn't have that help, I wouldn't be here today. And I had so much help and I still struggled so mightily. So if you don't have the help, you mind writing it to help, right? But like be open to receive help. It's okay. That's a really great message. And whether someone is going through something similar to, to what you are, even just with the challenges that have come along with this pandemic, I think that it's something a lot of us have had to get comfortable with, you know, we you need help sometimes and it's okay to ask for it. Um, and you know, pushing through and, and causing more stress on yourself is not a win, um, when you can ask for, for that help. So I really appreciate that, that message. I think it has a lot of kind of universal value. Yeah. And one thing about like, the pandemic that I kind of impart on, on people that I've, I speak to is just like, 
this brain injury situation was a perfect example of training for a pandemic situation because one thing I say all the time is control the controllables. You know, the, the brain injury is not something I could have controlled. This was a, I had the card in my deck. It came up. There was nothing I could have done that could have avoided this. The pandemic similar. Like you can't will your way to like avoid the pandemic or have it not impact you. Like you can't control that. So don't waste any energy on trying to control this thing that's uncontrollable. Focus on those elements that you can control. If you can't control it, I punt it. I don't worry about it at all. You mentioned a little bit about kind of your your morning routine earlier. How are you doing now? Like, what is life like for you today? Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, it's very good. Um, life is good. I'm very happy about things. But I've I've made it that way. Um, nothing I do in my life now is by accident. It's all very regimented and, and like routine based. Um, so for instance, I wake up, I've got a very religious morning routine. I wake up, I'll go for a walk. I'll get a sweat on. I'll come back. I'll shower. I am the shower with the cold shower for the final two minutes because it invigorates you. Then I'll meditate for meditation is a huge thing for me now. Like I, it's very woohoo initially. I was like, yeah, this is some monk like woohoo action but like now i'm i meditate so i don't know it's it, it's call it woohoo if you want but i believe in this 100 it's the best habit the best hack you can take on board so i do that for 25 minutes i uh i get my ducks in a row have a full breakfast and i'm on to work so i work four days a week um on my job which is a great great gig because i need that fourth day well to be honest this is my off day today so this is why i'm able to do the interview today but that fourth day is, or that, that day off is to kind of get myself organized, go for a swim if I can, get my ducks in a row for the rest of the week. You know, and I tell people like I, I work four days a week, like, oh, that's nice. And like, well, I ramped up from two, not down from five. So it's like I progressed up to four. I just haven't crossed the chasm to five, but, but life's good now. I mean, there's definitely stuff that I can't. I don't say can't do, but there's stuff I haven't done yet. So for instance, skiing for me is a big thing. Um, I remember I was on the even bars with my rehab team at the Charing Cross. And the even bars are something you hold when you're unstable on your feet. And they asked me, hey, Dan, what do you miss the most about doing athletically or like physically? And I thought about this. Like, this, is a, this is a big question, Dan. You got to have a good answer here. So I thought about this. And you know what? Skiing would be the most difficult to get back to doing. Balance, core strength, depth perception. Double vision would make things interesting. Gauging obstacles at speed. I'd like to see again, I said. So they paused. They nodded in agreement. And I said, okay. And I'm sure this is a simple thing they said. They just asked me to like think me, to get me thinking about future goals. And that's been burned in the back of my mind. It's something I'm gunning for. So this year, 2022, has been 10 years since I left skiing in Morsin, a mountain in Switzerland. And the goal is to swim, or to swim, to ski this February with a friend of mine, a grouse. Nothing major, no double black diamonds or, or crazy mountain skiing. I used to ski race, so I was quite a big skier back in the day. 
But the goal is to get back on the slopes. I got to buy a new helmet. I got to get my skis waxed and, and uh, sharpened. They're probably a bit outdated, but I think we're going to go with those skis. But that's just something that I've I've held on to as like a future goal, something I'm shooting for. And I'm stoked to be able to go because the, the measure of success, the KPI for this, the key performance indicator for this is just going on the hill, just being on the mountain. I don't care if I can rip up the slopes. I'm not trying to hit black diamonds or do black diamonds. Like I'm going to hit a green or a blue maybe, but I'm going to go and I'm going to go 100%. So I'm really stoked for that because that's been something I've been gunning for. I've been chasing that down. Like goal setting for me has been so key for this. Without goal setting, I wouldn't have been able to start walking again or start talking again or start skiing again. Like it's all building towards something. Like it's all ramping up towards something. So I went on a bit of a tangent there. I'm sorry, Priya. But um, yeah, that's what things are at. No, no apology needed. I think that's really exciting. And please keep me updated. Um, I would love to hear how that first trip goes. I, I mean, going from, we took such a journey here through everything that has happened to you um, in the last um, seven plus years. It was 2014 when you first ended up in hospital. Here we are now in 2022. And I mean, it's just amazing that you went from, you know, not being able to talk at one point, not being able to walk. Now you're thinking about skiing in, in the upcoming months here. So as you reflect back on, on everything that's happened, I wonder what you hope others can learn from your experience. The biggest thing I can give you is, is don't feel sorry for yourself. You know, everyone's going through something. Everyone's got some issues they got. And no one's coming. No one's coming to help you. If you're going to get through this, you're going to have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and carry on. It's not going to be clean. It's not going to be smooth, but it's going to be one step at a time. And you got to build momentum. And you got to keep going forward one step at a time. However small that step is, you got to take that step and grow and progress. And you might not be, you might take two steps back some days, but keep moving forwards. Um, as I mentioned, the big thing here is like what you think about it. So the brain injury, you know, the brain injuries sucked isn't even a proper word, but it's, it's, it's devastating, right? Like it's a really big hit. But it's what you think about it that matters. So what a great opportunity is to refocus on my priorities in life. Who is what I want to be as a person? How do I want to live my life? Um, I'm such a better person after this brain injury than I was before. Not that I was ever a bad person before, but I have different values now. I'm like, I want to be this type of guy. I want to be this type of man. I want to hold these values and want to do these things. And I ride or die by those now. Like, that's my life. Not that I was a bad guy before, but like I was a bit more loose, a bit more fast and loose, a bit less structured. Now I'm much more like, I want to do A, B, and C. This is how I'm going to do A, B, and C. So my suggestion for those going through a difficult time, goal set. You know, what you think about the injury is huge. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Um, but progress in a way that's manageable and measured and consistent. Um, that's like a million things I gave them to do. But ultimately, it's, it's not what happens to you. It's what you think about it. So like, if you can get that in mind and embody that, you're, you're off to the races because... That's the biggest thing here is what you think about what happened to you. 
or your issue or your problem. Um, if you've used an opportunity, all the power to you. I think that is such a good note for us to end on. And it ties back into what you said earlier about it not being easy, but being simple, you know, setting those, those goals, however, you know, simple or however short-term or long-term they may be, um, really gives you that point of reference and that, that thing that you want that you can work towards and start creating steps to get to. So Thank you so much for that, Daniel. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, and we wish you all the best uh, as you uh, continue your recovery. And I hope that skiing, your first trip uh, back to the ski hill goes well. Priya, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Likewise. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for watching and listening. If you have a turning point story that you'd like to share with us, you can always email us at turningpoint at priasam.com. Don't forget to subscribe. If you are listening to the podcast, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and of each other.